0: Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Mutual Broadcasting System and Hollywood Radio Theater's premier press conference, Introducing Zero Hour, a new radio drama series.
1: Welcome to Breaking Walls, episode number 73. My name is James Scully. It's November 1st, 1973, and we're at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel in New York City, listening in on a press conference hosted by the Mutual Broadcasting System. They're launching their new dramatic radio show. It's called The Zero Hour. It's hosted by The Twilight Zone's Rod Serling and put together by former suspense producer and director Elliot Lewis.
0: So both of these proceedings are being simultaneously broadcast. Why is this such a momentous event? A How did we get to so this more than 630 point? 630 mutual radio network affiliates around the United States. To his right, Mr. Rod Serling, who is host and narrator of Zero Hour. You'll be hearing more from these gentlemen. But before we continue, let's switch to Hollywood for their introductions by the producer-director of Zero Hour.
2: The idea was one of... Many that I had in my heart and in my gut for the last five, six, eight years and I've been trying with networks and with agencies to make them realize that radio drama is one of the most unique forms of entertainment in the world of theater and in the world of communication. And they somehow didn't respond to me. Radio drama offers a listener something which they could not conceivably get in theater, in motion pictures, or in television. Your imagination, you, yourself, your fantasy, comes to the spoken word and you create a unique form of identification, a unique relationship to what's happening and it enhances them. I call it color radio. You can do anything you want with your imagination once I lead you to the point of exercising that imagination.
1: By November of 1960, the American radio drama was on life support. CBS, still broadcasting shows like Have Gun, Will Travel, Gunsmoke, Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar, and Suspense, decided to switch the last of their radio studios in Hollywood over to television and kill or move remaining programs to New York. Less than two years later, on September 30th, 1962, the final episodes of Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar and Suspense aired, bringing the golden age of radio to a close for CBS. ABC ceased production of Theater 5 in 1965 and moved away from radio drama completely. NBC's last show, Monitor, kept the medium alive by offering old radio stars and new skits, as well as staged vignettes, and interviews with celebrities that actually ran until January of 1974. But this was a medium that once had a full slate of dramatic programming, and during the 1960s, as radio lay dormant, mostly to the major networks, the television industry boomed for CBS, NBC, and ABC. However. The last of the four major radio networks, the Mutual Broadcasting System, had launched as a cooperative of affiliates in 1934 and was run as such until 1952, thus, never had the centralized capital necessary to venture into television. As the network spent much of the 1950s changing ownership groups, while major advertisers were abandoning radio for television, they ran the final episodes of their last two remaining half-hour dramatic shows, counter-spying gangbusters in November of 1957. Sports and news began to take up the majority of the Mutual Broadcasting System's programming. Throughout the 1960s, more frequent ownership and management changes continued to create network instability until C. Edward Little was named president in Uh, 1972. uh, Thank you, Ken, and good morning, everyone. During this time, Little created the Mutual Black Network, the first U.S. broadcast network catering exclusively to African Americans, in addition to the Mutual Spanish Network and the Mutual Southwest Network. Under Little's administration, Mutual became the first commercial broadcasting entity to use satellite technology for program delivery. And during his tenure as head of Mutual, Little hired Larry King to host an all-night phone and talk show Little had created.
0: As a national radio network with responsibility to more than 630 affiliates and to millions of listeners throughout the United States, we wanted to be absolutely certain that we would present only a high-quality product. We are now proud to introduce Mutual's new and exciting mystery drama series entitled Zero Hour, featuring original dramas written especially for radio starring Hollywood's greatest names, Patty Duke. Nina Fosh, Keenan Nguyen, Richard Crono, along with many others and hosted by Rod Serling to be premiered on the Mutual Network Monday, December the 17th.
1: Today on Breaking Walls, we tell the story of two radio producers and their attempt to revive radio drama in the mid-1970s. One would succeed where the other failed, but in the end, the nation was not yet ready to re-embrace the theater of the mind. If this is your first time listening to Breaking Walls, thank you. You can find Breaking Walls on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. This includes Google Play, Cloudcaster, Stitcher, TuneIn, SoundCloud, Short Orange, and Player FM. If you've been enjoying Breaking Walls, please leave an iTunes rating and review. It helps the algorithm and helps more people discover the show. To be kept easily abreast with the show, join our Facebook group by searching for The Wallbreakers on Facebook. There, you'll get notifications when wall-breaking things are occurring. We're also on most forms of social media like Twitter, Instagram, and Pinterest, and are still selling our Wallbreakers Unity t-shirt line, which uses the slang names of the five boroughs of New York City to help show unity amongst New Yorkers near and far. Those shirts can be found at thewallbreakers.com slash shop.
2: We broke the mold, literally. That's the only way to bring something back. We're going to be on the air seven nights a week with a 53-minute complete mystery drama each night. Seven nights a week. Never in the history of radio broadcasting did anybody attempt to do a series seven nights a week.
1: That was the voice of Hyman Brown, a famed New York producer and director. In 1973, Brown was 63 years old and had been on the air since the age of 18. He's noted for having created the Inner Sanctum Mysteries, Bulldog Drummond, Grand Central Station, and Dick Tracy. Calling all adventure fans. Calling all Dick Tracy fans. Stand by. Dick Tracy is on the air. Brown was itching for the chance to work on a radio series again. The need to bring back radio drama was
2: in me. Radio had become music and news and a service rather than an entertainment. Fortunately, Sam Diggs, who is the president of CBS Radio, and I, we were old friends. And we would kick this around at lunch once or twice every six or eight months. And then about a year or a year and a half ago, when I came to him with this idea of seven nights a week, to create a habit once again, so that the station that carries the drama can truly say, we're the drama station. Stations, as you know today, radio stations, are programs. That's a station right. plays a particular kind of thing. It's either all news or all rock. Here we are, back with something where the station can say, we are the drama station. you got to give them a reason for this.
1: At the same time, Elliot Lewis, who produced and directed such shows as Suspense, Broadway is My Beat and starred as Frankie Remley in the Phil Harris and Alice Faye show was approached with an opportunity to relaunch radio drama on the West Coast in Los Angeles. A man named
3: Jay Colos, who has an advertising agency out here in the Valley, had a notion that it was a good time to do dramatic radio. And he called a man named Jack Myers, who I've known for years, Jack and I have worked together and told him what his idea was and asked him how you would go about doing such a thing. And what Jay's notion was was that in order to break in and get an audience, you couldn't just do one 15-minute show once a week. You had to do something that held to it. And about all they could afford, and it seemed a good idea, was to do a cliffhanger. In other words, to do five half-hours a week. There really was one story. So Jack called me and asked me if I'd be interested. And I said, "Yeah, that sounds like a marvelous idea." Very soft. This is
4: we're in a studio in Hollywood preparing to record the first program in a new radio series called The Zero Hour. This new series, especially designed for the new radio, is what you might call a pioneer adventure. We're ready to record the opening. Everybody, Rod? stand by. Music, stand by, stand. Quiet, please. And here we go. 10 I'm Rob Sermon. You're listening to The Zero Hour. Nine. Rest your eyes. Eight. Anxiousize your, your imagination. Seven. This week, Bill S. Ballinger's best-selling novel, The Pursuit of a Damned Couple. Six. The wife of the red-haired man. Five. Starring Patty Dugas. John Aston. And Howard Duff. Two. In Elliot Lewis's production of. One. The Zero Hour.
0: Five. We,
3: we can did an
4: audition. Can
0: we get sure, brain, That please. is to
3: say, five half hours of a book by Bill Ballinger called The Wife of the Red-Haired Man. And we starred uh, Howard Duff, and Patty Duke Aston and John Aston and a cast of thousands. We had a big cast. Janet Waldo, and Irene Tedrow, and Les Tremaine. And uh, anyway, we did it. They went off, and they sold it for syndication.
4: Control room belongs to Elliot Lewis, the producer director of Zero Hour. Together, he and I will bring you each week a dramatization of a famous mystery novel tales of suspense, detection, action, mystery, and horror. Ah, uh, nice,
1: Rod Serling had first worked in radio as an actor and writer at WNYC in 1946. He freelanced when he could while taking odd jobs to survive until 1950, when at the age of 25, he was hired as a network continuity writer at WLW Radio in Cincinnati, Ohio. There, he wrote announcements, program buffers, and trailers or descriptions for upcoming programs. But he couldn't stand the life as a staff writer. He was later quoted as saying, from a writing point of view, radio ate up ideas that might have put food on the table for weeks at a future freelancing date. The minute you tie yourself down to a radio or TV station, you write around the clock. You rip out ideas, many of them irreplaceable. They go on and consequently can never go on again. And you've sold them for $50 a week. You can't afford to give away ideas. They're too damn hard to come by. However, he also praised the experience, saying, I learned time writing for a medium that is measured in seconds.
5: This week's story draws its title from an ancient Irish poem. Here's the last verse. But the day of doom shall come, and the hills and harbors be rent. A mist shall fall on the sun, from the dark clouds heavily sent. The sea shall be dry, and the earth under mourning and ban. Then loud shall he cry, for the wife... Of the red haired man. It's the tale of the hunted and the hunter, the pursuer and the pursued, the stalking of life and death. Do you believe, as I do, that the hunter and his quarry build an empathy between them, a sympathy? As the chase builds toward the inevitable conclusion, is it possible that subconsciously they become aware of each other's moves, counter moves, plans, even emotions? There are two individuals who will tell you that so, the poet and the cop. Our story begins after this word. I'm going to buy a paper doll that I can call
1: my own. Howard Duff and Elliot Lewis have been friends from their days working together for the Armed Forces Radio Service in World War II to come to uh,
0: Hollywood. Are you ready for this, for the Armed Forces <laughs> Radio Service? I mean, it was a talk of the, the whole division. <laughs> this dumb fool is going to Hollywood.
6: And what was it like
4: in the Armed Forces? This was a pioneering effort in those days. And the Armed Forces
0: Radio Force?
4: Yes, that part of your career, yes. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. actually, the they, didn't, on the they
0: didn't really know what to do with people like myself, who actually, I was not a writer per se. I was not a producer, I was not a director, so Elliot Lewis and myself and Alan Hewitt and a couple of other people were put in charge of, uh, Elliot and I originally, we recorded regular commercial programs off the air, and then we had to reassemble them because of censorship reasons, you know, in wartime, where certain things were verboten, and we reproduced them, as a matter of fact. That was our job. We, it was a separate department. We turned out an awful lot of The Adventures of, of Sam Spade,
1: Detective. Duff had famously starred as radio's Sam Spade between 1946 and 1950, a program that Lewis occasionally directed when normal director William Spear was unavailable. John Astin rose to fame on television in the 1960s, starring as Gomez Adams in The Adams Family between 1964 and
4: 1966.
1: Patty Duke's most recent film, You'll Like My Mother, premiered on October 13, 1972, She married Aston that same year in 1972, and the couple worked extensively together during their marriage. Operator!
4: Albert? He's dead. You shot him.
5: He was gonna call the police and spoil it. I waited seven years, Mercy. Seven years!
4: But he's dead. What will happen to us? I don't remember if I'd ever seen a dead body before. But Hugh faced the matter as though it were almost commonplace. He hung up the phone, which had fallen to the floor, and then closed Albert's eyes.
7: He would have separated us again. I couldn't let him do that. Was it true what he said about you? No. We can't stay here. Then we'll leave. You take what you need and we'll leave together.
1: The Zero Hour was originally placed into syndication on Labor Day, September 3rd, 1973. It received good reviews and after the series ran its final episode of The Dead Man's Tale on November 30th, Mutual Broadcasting, Sensing an Opportunity, picked the show up. It premiered on Mutual December 17th. That same month, in December of 1973, Hyman Brown appeared as a guest on Dick Bertel and Ed Corcoran's Golden Age of Radio program.
2: You know, I think perhaps this can be the most exciting interview we've conducted on the program because it's going to enable us to look ahead for the first time. We've been on the air for over three years, and we've had to talk about the 30s and the 40s and the early 50s when... Radio disappeared from the scene, but now radio, thanks to you and CBS, is coming back. The name of the show is... The CBS Radio Mystery Theater. Mystery is a flexible word. It's the macabre, the suspense, the eerie, the unexplained, the unseen, we'll do ESP kind of things, the occult stuff that deals with outer space, maybe some science fiction...
8: I'm so frightened. My skin feels like ice. Darling, you won't have to be
2: frightened if you do what I said.
6: It's only lying that makes us
8: afraid.
2: They're just tight, good, mystery suspense stories. Hi, radio drama has been dormant for 20 years, for a full generation. Now, in that period of time... What changes have taken place as far as radio drama that, as you conceive of it, is concerned? Well, first off, the whole production technique has changed. I'll be recording on equipment that didn't exist 20 years ago. I have a 16-channel console. The whole world of sound has changed. We can now put sound into cartridges. You don't have to spot a record. The cartridge hits the sound right on the button, the gunshot. We can make continuous loops now of street noises, of crowds, of backgrounds of all kinds. So that sound is better, All my music will be on cartridges so I have no needle scratches I have no surface noises to contend with and then of course the whole world of tape recording changes my actor if he flubs a line we stop go back for speeches and I edit it out afterwards I don't like uh, the quality of the uh, let's say the, the railroad background I add some more sounds to it when I re-record afterward. then Even acting styles, the intensity of acting, the relationship of my actors one to the other and the relationship of them to me as a director, that's changed in the last 20 years. The relationships of people in general has changed. Basically, we remain the same. I Love You is still as potent as it was 10,000 years ago.
1: The CBS Radio Mystery Theater launched on January 6, 1974 with a play aptly titled Old Ones Are Hard to Kill. Like Rod Serling with Zero Hour, CBS tabbed E.G. Marshall as the host of the program due to Marshall's ties to radio, television, films, and the stage. In 1973, Marshall was known for his prominent role in the 1957 Twelve Angry Men and on the 1960s CBS television show The Defenders. These two hosts harkened back to the golden age when characters such as The Man in Black, The Whistler, The Mysterious Traveler, and Raymond Edward Johnson hosted macabre programs. Hopes were high. Now two shows were premiering on two competing networks. Perhaps it wouldn't be long before NBC and ABC jumped back in and joined Mutual and CBS in the new radio game.
6: G. Marshall the past is like a funeral gone by the future comes like an unwelcome guest the future the impenetrable imponderable future as the song says who knows what tomorrow will bring well would you like to know the rest of your life is a book that has not yet been printed Ever. Would you like an advanced copy? A sort of pre-publication preview? The purpose of the next hour is to make you think about
8: it. Are you sorry you married me?
6: What kind of a question is that?
8: Answer it, Gretchen.
6: It depends on how I feel at any given time.
8: How do you feel most of the time?
6: Most of the time? I'd say I was sorry.
8: Why don't you do something about it?
6: Now that you mention it... I've been planning to. You want to talk about divorce? No. I've got a better way. A quicker way. Right here in my purse. Gretchen. You should know, Harold. Divorce is a sin.
8: What about the studio?
2: When I uh, made arrangements to interview you through Dick Brescia of CBS, he told me that they are outfitting a completely new studio for you. That's absolutely true. We're taking one of the large studios that is on 52nd Street that used to be part of the CBS radio setup. We're changing it around, putting in these sound effect consoles and cartridge machines that I've spoken of. The whole setup will be for me for 1974. Nobody else will use the studio. How could they? I've got to be in there. To make seven shows a week. How about the writers? Are you going to go back to the old stable or are you going to develop new writers for this concept? Hi. Two things are going to happen. I definitely want to develop new writers, it's very, very important and very necessary. Right from your area, the O'Neill Workshop, George White, who is the president of the O'Neill Workshop, oh, has shit. been in to see me. Uh, we've spoken. He has some four or five hundred people there. I hope to set up a seminar on radio writing when they hold the workshop next May. He has given me a list of people who might be interested, and we will try to work with them. To get off the ground, I have fortunately been able to fall back on a group of wonderful wonderful writers who are trained and experienced and have all been doing television and novels and movies and everything under the sun and theater but are so happy for the opportunity to come back to radio writing i have george Lothar, i have henry slazar i have sam dan Sidney sloan who for years wrote the shadow murray burnett who for years the true detective and malena Dietrich. these are some of the people whom i've been able to revive in a sense with very little effort to come back and write
0: chief novak and i had lunch and then i called new york and talked to scores He got me all points bullet not on mercedes turner with her description and was in the tedious business of checking out everywhere she might have gone friends neighbors stores everything so far he'd come up empty the woman had simply disappeared i was approaching the puzzle from the other direction trying to find a connecting thread from her earlier days chief novak drove me out to her father's house big old farmhouse set back from the road by a twisting gravel drive. Huge trees towered over the house like great leafy umbrellas. Come in. Simon Clinton, the woman's father, was tall and thin. A bit stooped. He had a long, thin face with creases running from cheek to nose. Snow white hair. Let Novak and me into a study out the big living room. Listened to a couple of worn, shiny, leather chairs and seated himself behind an old-fashioned roll-top desk. It was a genteel, patrician background for a woman I was beginning to suspect of murder. Chief Novak says you want to talk about my daughter. That's right, Mr. Clinton. Now, before we get started, if I did know anything, I doubt I'd tell you. Furthermore, I'll never believe she shot Albert Turner. Does she have any reason to shoot him? None I know about. Her. Anyone else want to shoot him? No. you hesitate? Just think. Would uh, Mrs. Clinton have any information? Quite sure she wouldn't. Miss clinton Clinton's uh, gone now. Very better than five years. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't realize. Uh, when was the last time you saw your daughter? A couple of weeks ago. Dinner one night in the city. You see her often? My daughter and I are very close. Sometimes she comes up here or else I... I go to New York. When did she marry Albert Turner? A little over a year ago. Do you have a picture of her? No. Not even a wedding picture? You heard me. I don't like pictures. Well, there's one over there. Mrs. Clinton? Yes. That's the exception. And if you had a picture of Mercedes, you wouldn't give it to me anyway, would you?
6: Uh, Williams, I
0: think maybe we uh, better move along. Mm-hmm. All right. Thanks for your time. Mr. We
3: recorded in stereo, which is interesting too. Some of the stations played it that way and we got some pretty good effects. And the way you described it it's gotta be one of the greatest things that ever happened in radio. So. Well I think when you hear Mrs. the Zero Hour, and then Stan's piano starts, you're hooked right there.
1: Unfortunately for Elliot Lewis's production of The Zero Hour, there were problems right from the very beginning.
4: But like all things, something went a little bit awry. Rather than syndicate, you went into a mutual, and then uh, what happened then? It was kind of a. Well, bad it, news. We,
3: we made the shows, and it was, for all I've heard, very, very successful. However, financially, Colos needed stronger money behind him than, than to continue to take the chance on syndication, although the stations involved in the syndication wanted to continue. So he made a deal, which uh, favorable to himself, which he had to do, with the Mutual Broadcasting System.
5: The Mutual Broadcasting System presents
0: The Zero Hour. Sponsored in part by Quaker State Motor Oil and National Presto Industries. This is The Zero Hour on Mutual Radio.
3: Where the program then went on the Mutual Network rather than syndication. However, it didn't go on the Mutual Network till 17th of December. Now the stations that had had it in syndication were then out of material. They had done 65 half hours. Now they're sitting and waiting for Mutual to catch up with them. So we lost a lot of steam that way, I'm afraid. Here, you
0: ready? Mercedes Turner.
4: I'm Mercedes Merlan.
0: Your husband is dead? Yes. Did you know there were blanks gun?
4: Yes, I knew.
0: Did you put them
5: there?
4: Yes. So he wouldn't kill again. He didn't know. I tried to stop him. Maybe it's just as well. Williams, this was in his pocket. Thank you. He said,
0: in case of an accident. To the police, New York City. I alone shot and killed Albert Turner... My wife, Mercedes Turner Rohan, is not responsible in any way.
1: It's signed, Hugh Rohan. <laughs> you. After the mutual syndicated Zero Hour broadcast aired the last of the 11 five-part stories on March 15, 1974, they went off the air for a brief period, returning on April 29th with a new format. The program changed to a full story in a single 30-minute installment with the same actors starring throughout the week in all five programs it only lasted until july 26th and was canceled in august of 1975 chuck shaden spoke with elliot lewis about his zero hour experience
3: they sold it to the mutual network and decided that i don't know what i was never consulted i don't know what happened to the show after that somebody else did it they decided they'd go non-union, and they bought some old radio scripts from someone and said, well, we'll revise these. and I heard a couple of them, and they were very disappointed. And the show was canceled, it didn't do well with it. Not that it, it uh, would not have been canceled if I had continued. I think there's an unfortunate thing in the entertainment business. If it's properly done, whatever it is, what you do, what I do, what Jack does, if it's properly done, it looks to somebody on the outside like, well, that's nothing to it. You know, I can do that. I just turn on a machine and hold a microphone in a fellow's face and ask him questions. Great. But there's more to it than that. Now, unfortunately, a lot of people have come in, in the history of the entertainment business, from the Greeks, I suppose, where somebody said, well, he thinks he can write a play. What if you see what I write? <laughs> What's so great about the frogs? I'll write a play called The Gypsies or whatever. You know, Well, there's a talent to it. So a lot of things get screwed up, unfortunately.
1: Lewis's disappointment was understandable. Gone Again was an opportunity to produce radio, especially that the program had positive listener reactions. On
4: the telephone at 578 Hello, you're on the air. Hi, yeah, I really liked it a lot. Uh uh-huh. Did you listen all week? Yeah, I did. Uh-huh. And you... I thought this was really good. I think it's different and it's better than music. Well, bless your heart. Thank you, and we'll see you on Monday. Thank you. Bye-bye. Right. Hello, you're on the air. Uh, I just want to tell you, I enjoyed your zero hour very much, and I hope you keep it up. Well, thank you very much. Where are you calling
1: from? Uh, Parma. Thank you for calling. Goodbye. Bye. But he was not to be deterred for long. Meanwhile, in New York, Brown was enjoying success thanks to a blend of old and new performers, writers, and an evolving audience. With a new show each day, it helped that many of the New York City performers Brown employed were used to the one-take life of the stage, like Jerry Stiller, who starred in the August 13, 1974 episode, The Frontiers of Fear, about a hustler who enters a pawn shop and is inexplicably drawn to an old typewriter.
6: or on the barren wind-swept plains of the Aztec pyramids. But it is even more intense when it is encountered on the streets of a modern metropolis. In our little tale, Harry Dorn meets the unfathomable as he crosses the threshold of a pawn shop. But why not let Harry describe his frightening journey in his own words?
8: Listen to me, please. Whoever finds this tape, hear me through, or it's curtains. Not for me. I'm a dead duck, no matter what happens. But for you, and for everyone else in the whole world. I know you think this is a gag, but it's not. you got to believe me. I never prayed before, but I do now. I'm Harry Dawn. Nobody. Small-time con man, losing horse player, Dead-end Dawn, that's how I think of myself. My life was a series of ups and downs. Mostly downs. Never as down as the day I walked into Flint's pawn shop. That's a good name for him. His heart is made of it. Morning. What can I do for you? Oh, it's you, Harry. Don't get all choked up, Flint. This is no touch. And what have you got in your mind? I don't know. Just dropped in. What do you give me for this? Tell me what it is first. You really don't know? (laughs) How about that? These are the silks our Caro rode when he won the derby on Citation. So what? So, it's history. Only the creeps like you, sorry, no sale. Take it for only 25 bucks. It's worth a lot more. I'll tell you what I'll do. Pick out anything in that corner, anything. And I'll trade you even. That way nobody loses. But I need eating money for it. Take it or leave it. I was going to leave when I heard this voice inside my head. Like... Someone jamming the circuits in my brain. Take the typewriter, Harry. Take the typewriter. went on and on in my head, over and over. I was powerless. Take that typewriter, laying there with all that junk. I think there is something so
2: special between the the listener and the other side of the microphone in the studio. Very special. I don't feel I'm talking to two men now. I feel I'm talking to a whole world all of the people that you have created for me because of what you're doing. It
8: wasn't long before the mysterious voice took charge. I typed the days without any rest. I blacked out and when I came to, there was a pile of pages stacked neatly next to the typewriter. It was a short story, a murder mystery. I read a little bit of it, but it turned my stomach. Too bloody. But I sent it off to Gladys anyhow. I didn't have anything to lose. Guess what? Another sale. And the bread came in like manna from heaven. I was sitting on top of the world until I got a visit. Who's there? Elise. What do you want? You Harry Dorn? That's right. Did you write this story? Death on a Side Street. Sure I did. Anyone says I didn't is a cockeyed liar. How did you tumble on it? I dropped it up. All of it. Right out of my head. Did you read this morning's paper? Not yet. Why? Take a peek at the headline. Gang chief slain. So what? It happens all the time. Read the story. See if it sounds familiar. You had the guy killed in your story by a mortar shell, Right. It's a little weird, but you've got to have a gimmick today to sell your stuff. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Well, uh, read the item in the paper. There. See how Esposito was wiped out. A mortar show. Mm hmm. Isn't that something? I didn't think those bums could read. So uh, you're claiming they copied it from your novel, huh? Well, what else could it be? We'll find out, Mr. Dorn. Uh, we'll find out at headquarters, one way or another. <laughs> I
2: didn't want to go back, I wanted to go forward. I felt that the dialogue patterns of 74, that the recording techniques of 74, that the whole style of relationship between actor and spoken word is different in 74,
1: and it is. In 1974, Brown's Mystery Theater won a Peabody Award for helping to usher in a new era of radio entertainment. His success led to the birth of the General Mills Radio Adventure Theater by the CBS Radio Network in 1977, with Happy Days' as Tom Bosley as host. This series, produced by Brown, was aimed towards a younger audience and would air on the weekends. 52 unique shows were produced over 26 weekends, from January to July in 1977.
5: The General Mills Radio Adventure Theater... Welcome to the magic world of radio, where you make everything possible. I'm Tom Bosley, and I'll lead you through mysterious highways and byways into a world that's inhabited by heroes and villains, beggars and kings, dragons, and winged horses. And radio is the magic genie who, with the click of a dial, can summon forth all these marvelous characters... And show them to your inner eye, the eye of your imagination. In
1: 1979, Elliot Lewis, still wanting to produce radio, teamed up with producer and director Fletcher Markle to pitch an even more unique drama revival concept, alternating genres five nights a week. They pitched the concept to Ingrid Carlson, who was at that time the Chicago-based supervisor of the Sears TV commercials. She liked the project so much that she persuaded Sears VP John Beebe to greenlight the production. Sears underwrote 130 episodes, which cost a whopping 1.2 million dollars, over four million dollars today. Writers were paid 350 dollars per script. Actors were paid a union-scale wage of 80 dollars per hour.
8: This is Lauren Green. The wagon train is moving west across barren, windswept plains. Far ahead, several days' travel at the least, the foothills of a distant mountain range. swim One of the wagons, pulled by a CDP
1: locomotive. Of- the Sears Radio Theater premiered on February 5, 1979, on CBS. Lauren Green, Ben Cartwright on Bonanza, hosted Westerns on Mondays. Andy Griffith hosted comedies on Tuesdays. Vincent Price hosted Mystery and Suspense on Wednesdays. Cecily Tyson hosted Love and Hate Dramas on Thursdays. And Richard Widmark hosted Adventure Dramas on Fridays.
8: This is Richard Widmark. You're flying over a small tropical country in Africa. It could be any of half a dozen countries caught in the middle of civil war or political upheaval. Once occupied by the Belgians, and the French, and the British, it is now in the hands of its native people. Or perhaps I should say, in the hands of Mandu Ranana, the self-appointed president. The name of the country Between
1: February 5th, important. 1979 and February 28th, 1980, CBS offered two usually back-to-back weeknight hours of revival drama to its network audiences with both the Sears Radio Theater and the CBS Radio Mystery Theater.
3: I really was most anxious to come here today because I wanted, wanted to thank all of you for your support on Sears Radio Theater. Just to give you a brief history, a year ago this past June, last month, I was invited to meet some people at lunch, and I was introduced to two very tall people, a man named John Beebe and a woman named Ingrid Carlson. And they said, we want to do a radio show five nights a week, different type of show every night, different host every night, and we have all three networks interested. Would you be interested in being in charge of this program? You can do whatever you want. So I said, the worst thing that can happen, which I've said a million times, Worst thing that can happen to you in show business is that you're a hit because then you get stuck with something that you hate and every day you have to get up and do something you really loathe. And this might work, so I better think about it. So I went home and Mary and I talked it over and uh, we said, well, we'll give it a shot and see what happened. And I was in the middle of writing some scripts at Warner's television scripts. And I had a book that a publisher wanted to buy with an option for a second book. But I called these people and I said, okay. From that start, as of this moment, as of yesterday noon, we are on a network of 194 radio stations. We will be finishing the originals. We have completed recording 130 original radio dramas, 80% of which were written by people under the age of 35, who not only had never written a radio show before, we had to show them what the form of a script was. They had never heard a radio show before. Nelson Riddle has written 130 scores, and I was told on Friday that it looked almost certain that we would be renewed for a second year because, <laughs> because of support. Your support and mail and coming to the Morgan Show and helping us out like you did. The first eight markets that they have gotten any news about listeners, Sears Radio Theater has increased the listeners in those first markets 56%. You don't have to any longer just remember the old days. There are now new days of radio and new stuff thanks to all of you.
1: These shows, along with NPR's successful earplay, WAMU's The Big Broadcast, the work of Dick Orkin, the growing National Radio Theatre of Chicago, and other independent shows created a mini-dramatic revival. Lewis understood that he needed to develop continuity amongst the storylines so that the guest hosts weren't the only thread from week to week. He felt that comedy was impossible without developed characters, and that Monday did better ratings when the stories were what would be classified more as Americana than straight westerns. The shows needed to develop more stable plot lines. When
3: we were fortunate enough to have the guest hosts in town, we had one place near the end of the season I thought, we're never gonna finish this. Cicely was in New York, Vinny was in Hong Kong, and he was in North Carolina. Widmark had gotten so angry at a picture company that left him on a Russian trawler somewhere in the Alaskan waters that he'd flown to London, then went to Connecticut and hid. And I had to get Howie Duff to come in and finish the season. And Wid said, I'm not going to do anything anymore. I'm just not going to do anything anymore. Said, well, okay. And Lauren, I don't know where he... I think he was in Hawaii. And we needed tracks from all of them. I mean, we had no tracks. We had nothing to assemble, and the shows had to be shipped on Saturday. And they all arrived within a day of each other. And poor Mark Trello was in there making copies, that I thought the machine would blow up, of all of their material from each of the shows, and then we just kept dragging them in, and got them, and we got everything.
1: Ultimately, it proved to be too daunting of a task. In early 1980, Sears pulled back some of its sponsorship commitments, citing an inability to fill all 12 of the nightly network and local commercial spots with exclusively Sears merchandise and services. CBS chose to drop the Sears Radio Theater in favor of the CBS Radio Mystery Theater, stating that they had their hands full trying to get sponsorship for one new time radio show. Mutual picked the show up renaming it the Mutual Radio Theater and promised Sponsors. However, after the 12 local and national commercial spots, the total dramatic time for the hour-long production was just 37 minutes. Eventually, Mutual cited the fall-off in demand for those 12 primetime spots as their rationale for officially terminating the Mutual Radio Theater on December 19, 1980. Almost all the 12 ad slots were filled by paying advertisers for the first 50 to 60 broadcasts, but by the summer of 1980, more and more of the network spots, and local spots too, were filled with public service announcements. By the time the second season of Mutual began in September, the overwhelming majority of those 12 spots were predominantly PSAs. Sears, for its part, did continue to sponsor the Mutual radio theater, albeit in gradually withering spots, right until the very end. In the early 1980s, Lewis spoke with John Dunning for his old-time radio program in Denver on 71K News Talk Radio about his work on The Zero Hour and the Sears Radio Theater.
6: As I go back
7: into what I know about your career, and instead of starting at the beginning, going back from now, we look back about nine years ago and you were directing and producing a series called The Zero Hour, which was syndicated. Yeah, radio show. And uh i listened to some of those the tapes of that show and uh, you know you guys did just about everything you could possibly do you had top line talent good writing solid stories mm-hmm. why didn't it work in the sense that they couldn't sell it that's what i mean do, do you have a theory about why radio today will not go on stations uh, anymore yeah i think there's no national advertiser support incidentally i was listening to your on the air thing and I heard Fletcher giving the closing credits. Was that a Studio One? Yes. Because Fletcher was my partner, right-hand general assistant in uh, the Sears Radio Theater and Mutual Radio Theater that we just completed. And we ran into the same problems there. We just completed doing 235 original hours on the CBS radio network. That <laughs> was the Sears show. Mutual picked up the second year, and they had to give it up because where stations would be able to sell to national sponsors. For example, KNX here is a CBS station and yet carried the Mutual Radio Theater, including the title Mutual Radio Theater. Locally, George Nikoloff, KNX, was able to sell the time allotments, local time allotments, to national sponsors. If I can name a few of them, Lufthansa, General Motors, Wall Street Journal, we're buying local spots on KNX, and yet national sponsors were not supporting the shows. And the same thing was uh, true of Zero Hour. In the case of Zero Hour, however, it started out as a syndicated show. As I say, and you said, we had big stars. We, we would have three or four or five stars on a show coming in to do uh, two or three hours work on each half hour. I think one of the reasons it was difficult to sell, aside from national sponsor interest, is that in trying to do the dramatization of a novel into five half hours, made it necessary to sell for the station to play all five half hours and to play them in sequence, play them in order. Mm -hmm. And I think you really are disturbing a pattern that the station has. You, I gather, are now on... The station, the, the broadcast we're doing right at this moment. Mm-hmm. Is this on a station that is largely talk? Yes. So once the station is patterned, I think they kind of stay that way and they don't like to make changes. Although KNX here, which is an all-news station, carried uh, Sears Radio Theater and carried uh, Mutual Radio Theater and carries High Brown Show. CBS Mystery Theater. Mystery Theater, mm-hmm. right. So, I don't know, I think it's national sponsor interest from what I can gather from friends who are in the agency business. The national sponsors, I don't know, I guess they just don't believe there's an audience. We found quite the opposite. We found that there was an enormous audience and a great audience of young people who are learning how to listen. Boy, that's sure true. You find a whole generation that doesn't, isn't able to concentrate on...
1: Unfortunately for Hyman Brown. By the early 1980s, radio was now 60 years old, and most of the new activity and new listenership was on the FM band. AM radio stations were going out of business at record speeds because most music had moved to FM and taken with them younger audiences. The CBS Radio Mystery Theater had begun to decline. As John Dunning mentions in his Encyclopedia of Old Time Radio, CBS gave the time, a precious little money, and the affiliates felt free to tape delay or drop the show from its schedule at will. At KOA in Denver, it was often a casualty for sports. A complaining listener was told, in effect, that he was lucky the station was carrying it at all, because sports paid and drama didn't. At one rehearsal late in the show's run, Brown stopped the actors after an insufficient take. He mentioned, as long as we're stopped, I want to go back to the top of the scene because we had a little mistake in the control room. We're also getting some noise somewhere in the building. I'll tell you what, they want me out of here. They can rent it out to some rock group and get a fortune for it. E.G. Marshall stopped hosting in February of 1982 when stage and screen actress Tammy Grimes took over. The last original episode of the CBS Radio Mystery Theater aired on Pearl Harbor Day, December 7th, 1982, and was entitled The Boatman and the Devil.
8: Don't make me go away. I have to stay here. It's important.
1: Believe
6: me, it's very, very important that I should stay here. This is Tommy Brown, inviting you to return to our mystery theater for another adventure in a car. Until next time.
8: Stay tuned for a special presentation of the John Lennon story, which will follow the Midnight News.
1: This is WIP. Metromedia the final radio. rebroadcast, Resident Killer, aired on New Year's Eve 1982. After that, new radio drama was once again gone from the major network airwaves. The radio drama revival of the 1970s and early 80s proved that there was still an audience for radio drama, but it would need to be cultivated with consistent marketing and good shows. Sponsors, however, didn't have the patience to allow the audience time to grow, and both CBS and Mutual's frequent programming changes, sometimes without even informing the audience prior, proved to be too much to overcome. In 1997, John Dunning wrote that, In the 1990s, much like the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, for dramatic radio to have any chance of success, it would need to be approached as it is on BBC in England, where it has never been allowed to die. Perhaps Dunning was correct in 1997, before the days of high-speed internet, MP3s, smartphones, 4G, and on-demand listening experiences. So, where do we go from here? One month from today, beginning February 15th, 2018, Breaking Walls will be presenting the first in a long-term story arc, chapter one on the history of American dramatic radio. We'll begin before there was any programming to dramatize, when the only wireless communication was one that could be had in person. And we'll move through the movements and eras focusing on the technological creation of radio, the rise of the networks, programming, shows remembered and forgotten, industry growth, and why dramatic radio declined in the 1950s and died in the 1960s. But we won't stop there. We'll go past the 60s into the 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, and today, taking the story into the present and future. I'd like to play a clip from Hyman Brown again.
2: I think there is something so special between the listener and the other side of the microphone in the studio. Very special. I don't feel I'm talking to two men now. I feel I'm talking to a whole world, all of the people that you have created for me because of what you're doing.
1: That's from a now 44-year-old interview, and Dick Bertel is the only one of the three men who's still with us today. Not only was Hyman Brown talking to a whole world, he was talking through generations. His words are as true today as they were in December of 1973, and they span time.
7: This is Walter Cronkite. Inviting you to join me on a trip back through the greatest radio programs of the 20th century.
1: I think it's incredibly important to make this documentary series while the last remaining members of the radio community who were working in 1962 and prior are still with us. The
7: 1930s and 1940s were the golden age of radio, a magical era when Americans for the first time shared information and entertainment each night. It was a ritual that helped transform a diverse population into a unified nation.
1: I discovered the golden age of radio on Christmas Day in 1999 when my grandmother and grandfather showed me a box set of 60 old-time radio shows selected by Walter Cronkite. My grandfather popped on an episode of X-1 called Nightfall.
6: Countdown for blastoff. X-5, 4, 3, 2 minus one, fire.
8: From the far horizons of the unknown come transcribed tales of new dimensions in time and space. These are stories I was of
1: instantly future. hooked.
8: Adventures Audio in drama truly is the theater of the mind of as it's been nicknamed.
1: Many worlds, and many of its stars directly influence the, the stars the younger generations have grown up watching. I'm incredibly excited to put this together. I want to make sure this documentary gives the medium the spotlight it deserves. I'm setting up a Patreon at patreon.com slash the wallbreakers where supporters... Can get access to cutting room floor clips, be part of the show, have a custom built commercial made for them, and be part of making this happen while the last members of the radio community who worked during the Golden Age can still tell their story. I don't have a specific number of episodes in mind for this documentary because I'd like it to build organically. My main desire is to make it the most comprehensive documentary on the history of major network dramatic radio in America ever produced, which to me means several dozen episodes over the course of multiple years. So as I mentioned, patreon.com slash thewallbreakers is the place to support the show, which you can do for as little as a dollar a month to get access to all kinds of behind-the-scenes stuff as this documentary progresses. Chapter 1 of our Chronological History of America Dramatic Radio will be released on February 15th. That will be episode number 75 of Breaking Walls. But that's not all. The next episode of Breaking Walls, number 74, will be released on February 1st. It's going to coincide with the 6th anniversary of the launch of The Wallbreakers. For this episode, I'll have a jam-packed show of announcements, updates, teasers, and two great chats. One with the man who wrote the Who Is Johnny Dollar matter, John C. Abbott, about his experiences writing the first edition of the Dollar Book, and updates on the revised volume, which is due out this spring. In
7: that time span from December 4th, 1960, to the end of the run there were 95 weeks where I could have a program. I had 96 programs. Mm -hmm. And I'm looking at this and there is a program called, One of the Rottenest Rackets Matter. It's in between a program called the Double Barreled Matter and the Medium Rare Matter. I have come to the conclusion that, that program does not exist.
1: And the other, with the man who is responsible for the Zero Hour. Mr. J.M. Colos, president of the
0: Hollywood Radio Theater. Mr.
1: Colos is an accomplished producer of television, stage, and, of course, radio. Today, he runs the successful Orchard Street Productions, based out of Nashville, Tennessee. Mr. Colos will give us insights into the production of Zero Hour, perhaps never before heard. And speaking of accomplished men who worked for multiple years... Back to Hyman Brown for a How many moment. How shows were you
2: doing a week? I did as many as four and five shows a day. I did Terry and the Pirates and Dick Tracy back to back. And early in the day, I would do David Haram. And then I would do a half hour of Grand Central Station and so on. I would say that somewhere is between thirty-five and 40,000 broadcasts. Brown's
1: work on the CBS head. Radio Mystery Theater is some of the most intensive production work in the history of radio. There were 1,399 original episodes between 1974 and 1982. He was inducted into the National Radio Hall of Fame in 1990.
0: Today's episode brought to you in part by Quaker State and Presto. This is The Zero Hour on Mutual Radio.
1: married his second wife, radio actress Mary Jane Croft, in 1959. They lived together for the rest of his life. Lewis's last credit was as an executive story editor for season two of Remington Steele in 1983. I have
3: always felt that everybody in the entertainment business should know enough about every part of the entertainment business so that they respect what the other people are doing. Any actor who comes in and mutters about a script should be sat in front of a typewriter and put a piece of yellow paper in the typewriter and say, fade in, interior Lucy's living room day. She comes down the stairs, her hair and curlers, go. (laughs) Give me the other 32 pages, you know, and then argue about is this a good script or a bad script. And conversely, the writer who is, oh, these lines are so precious, should be made to stand in front of an audience and read aloud a bad joke and look like a fool. as the actor does while the guy, you look into the wings and the writer just went, oh, well. Well, <laughs> they all, right on, baby. And you're standing there with mud on your face. He passed you know, away on
1: May 23, 1990, thing. having well-earned the nickname of Mr. Radio. In 1998, Brown brought the CBS Radio Mystery Theater back to the air and replaced E.G. Yeah. E. Marshall as the host. He continued to work, and also taught audio drama for the School of Visual Arts and his alma mater, Brooklyn College. Hyman Brown died peacefully at his home in New York on June 4, 2010, at the age of 99.
2: Well, perhaps that's the way it happens. Perhaps it isn't. All we can do is pass the story along to you as it came to us. Each of us, whether he is aware of it or not, has his own thoughts upon death and what follows, based on what he has witnessed, what he feels in his heart, and maybe what he has heard on Mystery Theater. (laughs) This is Hyman Brown, producer-director, inviting you to return to our Mystery Theater for another adventure in the macabre. Until next time, then, pleasant dreams
1: This episode of Breaking Walls could not have been done without the interviews by Dick Bertel, Ed Corcoran, John Dunning, Spurvac, and Chuck Shaden. The Society to Preserve and Encourage Radio Drama, Variety, and Comedy is located at spurvac.com. Dick Bertel and Ed Corcoran's Golden Age of Radio program and John Dunning's interviews can both be found through the Old Time Radio Researchers Library at otrrlibrary.org. Chuck Shaden's interviews can be found at speakingofradio.com. The reading material used in today's episode was The Encyclopedia of Old-Time Radio by John Dunning, A Pictorial History of Radio's First 75 Years by B. Eric Rhodes, The Radio Career of Rod Serling by Martin Grahams Jr., and The CBS Radio Mystery Theater Handbook by Martin Grahams Jr. and Gordon Payton. I'd like to thank both of them for providing fantastic information that helped me put this episode together today. And I'd also like to thank the Digital Deli for their information on the Mutual Radio Theater. The music featured in today's episode was Caravan by 80 Drums from around the world, The Mills Brothers' Paper Doll, Seance on a Wet Afternoon, composed by John Barry and re-recorded by Nick Green, and Charles Bradley's Where Do We Go From Here, recorded for Daptones Records. You can find Breaking Walls on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you made it this far, please leave an iTunes rating review. It'll help more people discover Breaking Walls. And remember again, that one month from today on February 15th, 2018, Chapter 1 on the History of American Dramatic Radio will be available. In the meantime, I'll be releasing episode number 74 on February 1st, 2018, coinciding with the 6th anniversary of The Wallbreakers, and that podcast episode will be jam-packed with announcements, teasers, and other things for the coming series, as well as those two interviews with John C. Abbott and with J.M. Kolos. I'll also be releasing vlogs about the show's progress every Tuesday, and to find those, please join the Wallbreakers Facebook group. To support the show, please go to patreon.com thewallbreakers. Until February 1st, 2018, my name is James Scully. This has been Breaking Walls, episode number 73, and I'll catch you on the flip side. Thank you very much.
0: This is WBBN, the Wallbreakers Broadcasting Network. Thank you, and good afternoon.